Welcome to the Dylan Experience. Today is episode 75, and I've got a special guest for you. But before we do that, make sure you like, subscribe, follow, do all the things that you need to stay in touch with the podcast. My guest today is a men's mental health coach that focuses on healing things like trauma, lack of purpose and passion, as well as being a support structure for the many men that are struggling through life right now. She is a fellow TikTok influencer with over 150,000 followers who shares daily content to help men become more in tune with themselves and their relationships. I had the pleasure of joining her on her online summit, which was at the point when this comes out a year ago uh, in uh, the year of the man 2021. But I'm excited to share with you, Elise Michaels. Elise, how are you? Doing fantastic. Thank you so much for asking. <laughs> I'm, I'm loving that you already threw in the distance of time in there. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're filming this in September and it's coming out obviously when it comes out in February. So this is always, it's always fun. Um, I've, I've, I like to like, when I, when I do this podcast, when I had my baby or when my wife had her baby in uh, May, my goal was to kind of like push out my content as far as possible in terms of my podcast. So I've just kind of like built up a bank. Um, and at this point, I'm just kind of like adding to it a little, little by little um, because I knew, I knew I wouldn't want to do social media and I, and I wasn't wrong. Like if you look back at my content, you know, now in September, you know, I just haven't touched social media very much. I haven't been on TikTok. I haven't been on Instagram for sure. Um, and so I'm okay with that. And, and that was something that kind of surprised me because when I set out on this journey, I was like, I'm going to do content daily. And then a baby came and I was like, I don't care because that was more important. And that's, you know, that's where we are now, but obviously you're on the other end of the, of, of the scale. We already talked about that, but at least enough about me, tell me and tell specifically tell my, my followers and my subscribers here, who are you and why do you do what you do? Like, where did it, where did it begin? Where did it begin? Uh, well, thank you for that introduction, first of all, and congratulations again on your baby. Thank you. Um, it's been awesome to view your journey. And, and like you said, we're at opposite ends of the spectrum. You had a baby and stopped doing social media and I broke up with my relationship and started doing it more. So <laughs> here we are, the reason why I'm on the podcast. So the reason why I work with men when it comes to mental health and trauma, um, the men part found me but helping people through trauma was something that it was like scratching my own itch. I had a pretty dysfunctional childhood, went through life, happy, go lucky, joyous, because I didn't realize anything was different until about 25. And I had a relationship end and I was super heartbroken. And I said, I can't keep repeating these patterns. There must be something here that I'm not seeing. So that's when I got a therapist, which was awesome, but it still didn't solve all of the patterns, I felt like there was still something missing. So I think we talked about this on a different podcast that we did, but I dove into a lot of different things just to solve my own patterns. And once I started to understand neuroscience and how the brain works, I understood there is a logical process to healing your, your trauma. So I started posting about that content on LinkedIn, mm -hmm. looking to find female clients and ended up only getting males who <laughs> reached out for help. And so from there, I saw the need for men needing support in mental health. And I just said, yo, women have a lot of support 
and men really don't. So I was a little nervous, but I just opened up my doors to be a support for men. And I've been doing it for almost three years now. It's like the best decision I ever made. It's awesome. I, I always find it remarkable to see like parallels in, in people's stories and, and mine. Um, and what's funny is like at the age of 25, I also like, like broke up in, in a relationship. And that's when I, when my suicide attempt was, um, but like the same, it was the same start, like at 25, that's when things changed for me. And I started to kind of transform myself. So it's really interesting to see like those parallels. Um, you correct me if I'm wrong. You grew up in Wisconsin as well. Correct. Yeah. I keep forgetting so, that you're in Wisconsin. <laughs> we, Wisconsin has a, I feel like Wisconsin has a pattern of dysfunctional families. Oh, for sure. Like, I think everybody's it, family is dysfunctional Wisconsin. I, I have to look this up. It's like one of the highest per capita, like alcoholics or yeah, something, but it's so normalized you in high school. Everybody has had an experience where they go to a barn party and just get drunk off of like Bud Light or something like that. I didn't drink until I was 27. So <laughs> Um, I never went to any of those things, but it was like so common. People would just get wrecked on the weekends, like 15. It's nuts. So in 2019, Wisconsin ranked third in the country in terms of the percentage of uh, adults who drink alcohol at 64.4%. It's insane. The the highest behind only uh, Washington, D.C., which makes sense, and New Hampshire. D.C. is 68.7 and New Hampshire 64.6 going on in New Hampshire? I don't so know. Random. But, <laughs> you, like New Hampshire is one of those states you forget exists. Like, <laughs> are you okay over there, guys? Like, and we didn't even ask the question about Washington D.C. because we all know what what's happening there. That's a nightmare. Um, this has never been good. I mean, every I, people at least know what Washington D.C. is. New Hampshire, you just like what? What happened? I didn't even I didn't even remember you existed. There's it's like saying even, Rhode Island, like nobody remembers. There's not even that many people there. <laughs> um, but 64.6% of people there drink alcohol. So um no, it's 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 always so funny uh and interesting to kind of hear how people kind of came to the like what they do now, like I on this podcast specifically. But um, you know, I wanted to I wanted to talk specifically about. Now, you said you had a therapist and then that didn't, that didn't do enough. And I've, I've heard that before many times, many different clients have talked about it. Um, and, you know, one of the things that kind of strikes me is how much lived experience kind of matters in the work that we do. Um, and I wanted to talk to you specifically about trauma and men. And how does, how does your experience, your lived experience kind of help you, uh, you know, more deeply connect with men on their level and kind of walk them through some of these more delicate issues? I loved, I love that you asked this question in the way that you asked it, because you didn't just say, why is you, how are you as a woman able to help men? You said, how does your trauma help you understand like what men go through. And I've actually never thought about it before, but as you said that, um, I think for me, my personal experience, I had to go into a survival mode in a way that was like hyper-independent for a long time. So I developed a lot of what are classic societal masculine tendencies, right? I got a job from a very young age. I worked on a farm, like, you know, just like I went into self-support and self-sufficiency. And I became kind of like the caretaker. And so 
that in, in answering your question kind of, I think helps me have a more relatable energy to men because I get it because I've worked my whole life because I understand what it's like to have to take care of people and have the whole world kind of be on your shoulders mentally, emotionally. Like I said, I didn't, I didn't realize anything was wrong until 25 because my family was not able to handle emotions outside of my happy-go-lucky self. Whenever I broke down, I basically just got yelled at for it and told to shut up. <laughs> you know, like yeah. it was like yelled out of me. Like, so I just subconsciously understood that it's not acceptable. Um, but when I look at like my own clients, I never thought about it as like male versus female. I just, and when you're talking about the therapy thing, I don't think about it as experience versus not experience. I think about the way that the treatment is taught. Sure. And this is what I've just learned through my trauma therapy courses is that the relationship that you have with someone is more important than whatever you're giving to them. Like people yeah. talk about CBT or EMDR or whatever it is. And I literally just took a course before I got on this call that said, all of them are equally as effective or ineffective. It just depends on the person giving the treatment. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I, so, I think one of the, one of the ideas that I've been really um, I've really been focusing on lately is like the, the, the process of healing is deeply interactional. It, it, it almost has nothing to do with the actual therapy. It has everything to do with, um, can, can you either as a facilitator or as a client, uh, develop a way to interact with this human being across from you that is, uh, boundaried, uh, and relatable and, and has this kind of, uh, intrinsic trust, you know, and, and start to develop an understanding of where your interactions with yourself, with others, with the world interacting with you, where you can actually start having conversations with people about those things. That is where I think healing really begins. It doesn't begin with, Oh, I have a deep childhood wound. It doesn't begin there. It begins with, I'm building a relationship with you first. And when you really come to understand that, uh, you realize that if I can build one good relationship, I can build more and I can build, you know, I can put boundaries here. If I can put boundaries on Dylan, I can put boundaries on my toxic mother or my toxic father. Um, and if Dylan can do this to me, I can also take that as an example and do it in my own life. And I find that, you know, just every time I, I, I step into kind of the, the workplace, I'm, I'm, I, I see more of that every time. And I'm sure it's probably the same. I feel like, I feel very much like we are actually like the opposites of, of in our field. Like you didn't expect to find men, but you did. And I didn't expect women to come to me, but I did. Right. And yet, it, I don't know. It's, it's remarkable. I, I, I've, I've always found our conversations really interesting because I feel like we are kind of the equal and opposite in our, in our fields. Yeah. And I feel like it happens a lot actually with yeah. men wanting a, a female mentor and women wanting a, a masculine mentor. And I think we've talked about this before. Perhaps yeah. we fill in some kind of gap with mother and father wound, yep. which is just really interesting because I get people who ask me a lot and I'm not sure if they ask you, they're like, Oh, do clients ever like get crushes on you? Or they just hire you because they think you're good looking or something. And I'm like, it's not like that. The energy of the people who I attract no are idea. there for healing. <laughs> you right. know, it's like, 
it's just very interesting how people think about things. And you're right. Like the reason why someone goes to like a therapist or a coach and chooses that particular therapist or coach is because something within them senses the ability to find trust and support within that environment. And you cannot have a successful coach or relational relationship if there isn't a foundation of trust and support. Like the client needs to feel like you are demonstrating healthy relationship for them. Yeah. And and you have to, um, there, there has to be, I think what, what steps in the way of that is, is judgment in any way. Um, and I, and I think it, I think that's where a lot of therapists or coaches or, you know, anyone that's kind of stepping in this field, at least from my experience and listening to my clients and talking to them, that's where I think a lot of people go wrong is that they, they bring some form of judgment of action or decision or of listening to these people tell stories and then making a judgment of this is right or wrong. Um, and that becomes at least maybe, and maybe not with men, I'm, I'm actually kind of curious what your thoughts are because with women, that judgment is remarkably a negative experience for them. So what, what is your experience with that in, in the um, bringing judgment into the conversation with you? Can you give me an example of? So I think one of the most prominent kind of situations is the church, right? So if, if you're involved with the church, you, you might go to a, uh, a Christian counselor, Right. And this Christian counselor then says, you know, if they follow the word of God and they say, this is what's right for you. This is what you're supposed to do. This is how you're supposed to do it. Um, And rather than, you know, allowing this person to freely express themselves, even if it kind of contradicts the word of God or, you know, the the situation in which they're able to speak to this person, uh, there's judgment there because this person is very in tune with the word of God, rather than in tune with the feelings of this person. Um, so whether they say something and they're judged, or they don't say something because they think they'll be judged, um, that situation is becoming less and less useful and functional for the, for the client, and they, they step away. So that's, I, I think that's probably the best example I could probably give right now off my head, off the top of my head. Yeah, I think a lot of people are afraid to even start therapy or coaching because of their own self-shame also. When it comes to judgment, I mean, there is no place for it in a therapist or a counselor's office. If you feel judged by your therapist to think it's something to bring up uh, because there should be no judgment discerned by you within that within that place. It should be a judgment-free zone because your personal perspective doesn't have anything to do with the client. Yeah. I mean, it's, if you, I think it does. So, and, and here's, here's what I will say. If you bring it at the right time and in the right format, right? I think it's okay to bring your personal perspective, but if it's to determine righteousness or wrongness, you probably have made a mistake. I, I think if you, if you clarify you, the use of 
like narratives and, and um, anecdotes to, to discuss certain topics and help make topics relatable, I think it's actually quite beneficial, if that makes sense. Yeah. And like we said, it really depends on your relationship with the client. Correct. I try not to put any, of course, everything is biased no matter what. You can like not avoid true yeah. non-bias, but keeping it as equal as possible so that they can take their own perspectives through the learning that we're doing, right? right? Giving people options, giving people decisions, giving them different perspectives. I see that as kind of my job as opposed to putting my own preference because there's no way that we could know what's right for someone else. Right. Even if you think that you would do something else, they're like, this is what I would do. But at the same time, it doesn't really fucking matter what you would do because you're not that person and you don't have all of their trauma and their perspective and their experience. Like every single person's perspective belongs to them and them only. I think, and let me ask you this with, with men versus women, right? Because I deal with so many more women than I do men. One of the beneficial things that I do is when there is a challenge or maybe a differing of perspectives, uh, I work, you know, I don't do this right away, but we work up to actually challenging each other of here's this perspective. What are your thoughts on it? Let's challenge each other on this. Because in, in many realms, uh, women have a very difficult time challenging, uh, oftentimes a male figure, but just in general, challenging things and being relatively disagreeable. Uh, So I I always work on this idea of challenge me. Tell me when I'm, you know, when you disagree with me, you know, how, how do you disagree with me? Why do you disagree with me? Talk to me about this and express these feelings. Um, do you find the same issue or do you practice the same thing with men? It's funny because, you know, like you said, men and women are very different. So it's hard for me to say and make that comparison because I used to have female clients and now it's just, it's just only been men for a very long time. And I can't like observe myself in this scenario, but I always play devil's advocate with my clients because I'm trying to challenge them. Like that's how I operate. And then I also always say in the very first session, when we talk, I said, I need you to be authentic. And if you don't resonate with something, if you don't agree with something I say, I'm not always going to get it right. Just let me know. And we can work on it together because this is for you. Right. So I do encourage them to challenge me. Um, I think that's a lot easier for men because I, what I will often find with, with women is that I express that and I continually express that because what I've had is I've had an experience where I say something and two weeks later, I hear a response or three weeks later, or in a text message or an email, I hear a response, but the, the direct confrontation in the moment is not always available right, right away. Um, and so I find myself I've just always had this as a practice of, I want you to tell me if there's something wrong. And I recognize things really quickly. I'm, I'm, I'm really adept at recognizing those things. Um, so it's, it's really interesting that you say that just once and you get, do you get a response right away or is it? Well, no. So this is what I was going to say. Also, it's, it's hard to know because I'm very intuitive. And so 
yeah. <laughs> it's not necessarily that people challenge me in the moment, but if I sense discomfort or if I sense, I will like confirm with them or I'll be like, what is your perspective? Or was I off on this part? And I kind of weasel my way in to getting what they think if it feels off, you know? So I don't let things uh, ferment for weeks. It's just not like, if I send something, I call it out in the moment, but also because I'm so intuitive, I think it helps whatever I'm saying be more accurate, you know? And, And I don't try to like put too many perspectives out there before I've just gotten so much information from them that they kind of just like I let them pour first and then I talk like maybe the last 15 minutes of the session. Yeah. I, I feel like my, my experience is kind of all over the place because I've, I've worked with uh, highly dissociative clients that yeah. don't know how to speak. Yeah. Um, I've had clients that the only words they say in some of their, uh, some of our sessions are, I don't know. Um and, and very few other words are ever spoken, um, but they come back, right? And so there's there's this uh, relationship that's obviously being fostered. And, uh, you know, I've had clients that started with, I don't know, and then they come in a year later and are like, hey, Dylan, I've got something to tell you, right? Like, and, you know, that this transformation has happened from three words to 400,000 words in, a, in an hour, Um so it's always interesting you know, to see the the depth of it, and I, I don't only work with women. I've I've, I've worked with a, quite a few men, um, but it's more rare. You know, I I, I certainly uh, for some reason attract more women than men, and that's I don't see that as a bad thing. I'm just trying to help whoever needs to be helped. I walked into this obviously trying to help veterans, and then here I am, you know, just doing what I'm doing, you know. <laughs> Mm-hmm. so where you know where are you going like with with all of this like what is your ultimate um your end goal with with your work um obviously we've had we've had a summit before i know you're going to do that again um but like what is your end goal and what is your kind of like big dream that that you're trying to kind of accomplish with being who you are to change the world, to change the way the world views men's mental health so that the next generation of children doesn't have to needlessly suffer due to societal expectations. You know, I think if we can teach ourselves how to self-regulate and just understand our own authenticity, our own, our own joy, the world will be a much better place instead of dealing with like a lot of useless subconscious drama. How do you think we're going to get there? I'm going to grow my platform as big as possible (laughs) (laughs) because I know, because I know that a lot of the men I help are fathers. And if I can teach that man how to regulate his system and be more present and understand what's going on logically in his brain and his body, he's going to show up in demonstration of what a healthy man, a healthy regulated system is, but also he logically knows so he can talk about it and pass it on. And, and that spreads, it's like, pay it forward, right? You have kids, they have kids, the kids have friends, your, your wife's friends have friends or partner or whoever you go to work, you have people there, you know, so it spreads. 
it spreads and, and you have to be this person yourself in order to continue that message. Um, but I have faith that if everybody kind of selfishly looks to healing themselves, the whole world heals itself. Yeah. I, I, I can't agree more. You know, I, I think it's quite, I think it's quite a simple process. I guess other people see it a little bit more complicated, but I, you know, you, you talk about these things very simply and I'm like, yeah, I've, I mean, it's very logical, right? Like it, it makes absolute sense. Um, I, I feel like obviously we're obviously we're overlooking something because it hasn't happened yet. Right. Like we, what do you we mean have, it's happening? Well, it is happening, but you can't just say it hasn't happened yet because it will never have happened because people are continuing to evolve as who they are and the right solution will always be changing. But as long as people know the basics and the foundations, like the foundation for who we are will change, right? Like you create an impact, but it, it's an evolution. Certainly. But I think also the, the, the contrary or the contradiction will also evolve as well. There are people that would, would work against us. And so there's always like, there's always kind of this balance of, uh, because, you know, I, I come from military, right? Like, and, and what the aging veteran community looks at the military and now and says, it's a soft army, right? And there's, you know, there's a contradiction right there is the, the active work that so many people in the military and the leadership in the military have put in place to uh, work against that mentality and that culture uh, to make it better for soldiers coming in and then also to make it more uh, mental health focused for those who are actively in and, uh, you know, getting out is still not good enough and is not good enough for the people who went through the hardship of what the military was before my time and, and before. Um, and that's just an example for the military. There are so many people out there that look at mental health and say, it's, you know, a bunch of wussies and a bunch of soft, you know, soft hearted people. Um, and so like, there's, there's still this contradiction that will always, I think will always exist, even with the evolution of how we approach it. I think we can't just like, kill off all the people that don't agree with this and say, here's who we have left and let's continue. There's always going to be this contradiction because there's hardship and there's not hardship. Right. And yeah. And the contradiction just complements the cause. Like, you know, it's one of the universal laws that the law of polarity, there's always an equal and opposite to anything that exists, but you can't just focus on, Oh, there's always going to be racist. There's, there's always going to be bad shit happening. So what's the point of doing the good shit? I feel like that's where people fall. They're like, what's the point? Because X is always going to exist, but I'm not looking at X. I don't really care about that. It is always going to exist, but I'm going to do what I can over here to just reach the people that I can that want to be open to that. And they're going to reach the people that they can who are open to that. And it's okay, honestly, for me that the other side exists because we need contrast in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it certainly creates a, a specific, specific subset of adversity that then creates people like us obviously, which is always interesting. Um, 
I, I do think, you know, there's, there's an eventual kind of transition closer and more, more, um, more openly to the idea of mental health. And I think social media is a, a really big fundamental key to that. Um, I am curious what, with all the work that you do on social media, it's clearly beneficial to both you and I, um, how do you kind of feel about that, that contradiction of is social media good or is social media bad? And what do you, what do you feel about that? I don't look at the world in such black and white perspectives anymore mm-hmm. um, because it's just a tool, just like anything else. Like a gun is a tool, good or bad is determined by the person wielding the tool, mm-hmm. right? So when I, and I, I want to jump back onto what you just said about like the movement of the mental health, because I have a particular perspective on that, which is, I feel like it's going towards people want to just eliminate suffering altogether. They want to, they would just want to eliminate anything that could make anyone suffer, anyone feel any pain. And so we, I feel like we are becoming quote unquote soft because we're not teaching ourselves that pain is okay. And how to just be able to endure and understand that pain is necessary and it's, and it's okay. And that's really what I try to teach through my teachings is like, Hey, when you come into session with me, it's not going to eliminate pain for the rest of your life because hardships are going to come, but you're going to feel really equipped when they do, you're going to feel prepared and you're going to know that you can get through this. But I think the way that social media and like society is going is they're trying to eliminate any form of discomfort or suffering or pain for anybody. And I think that that is going to collapse us because it makes people feel like they're incapable. And when you have countries that feel incapable, then the people who have planned that take the lead and, and use your, you against yourself. Yeah. I, I, I certainly can't disagree with that. Um, I think one of the, one of the things I, I, I really like to highlight in this conversation of social media is I, I think this idea of accountability right now is that we're, we're kind of in this situation where, you know, it's funny, you kind of brought up these, these people that are kind of manifesting this idea of putting pe- people in this space. Um, I see right now, social media is kind of this, this outlet for all of these people that are looking at the world and saying, this is really fucked up. Um, and recognizing that and kind of putting people on blast for it. Um, like we've never ever seen in the world before. Like we've never had the outlets that we do now where, you know, Joe from down the street can take a video of a, a, a cop that's beating the shit out of someone that he doesn't need to beat the shit out of um, and post it to TikTok And there it is. Um, which I find, I find that quite remarkable. I find that really interesting to, you know, to, to be able to have that power and that kind of reach to do that. Um, and I think it's really opening people's eyes to certain things. I think it's opening people's eyes to, to sex trafficking and human trafficking. Um, I think it's certainly, obviously you and me are right here, trauma, um, domestic violence, uh, you know, all sorts of different things are kind of being revealed. And I find that remarkably interesting. Um, 
And I find that really beneficial, but there's also things that I think are, um, there's that interconnective kind of subset of what social media is doing is also, uh, what is it called? Um, you know, like the, the entertainment aspect of social media is also, I, what do you think? Can it be quite destructive? Once again, I don't think in that black and white because well, that's, here. that's not black and white. I mean, well, it is because it, it's like, can it be destructive? So it's either destructive or it's not destructive. And that's there's, kind of like a black and white thinking. But I just want to point out like destructive. Right, right. But there's a spectrum of destructive in everything that you just said, because maybe people are more aware of sex trafficking, but with more attention on sex trafficking, it also enhances sex trafficking. It enhances racism. Like people don't understand this. Like when you bring more attention to something, you put more energy into something and the awareness enhances the thing at the same time as it's trying to destroy it. You see what I'm saying? Like when, when the news focuses all on negative things, your energy and your response to that is like, now you're searching for all the negative things and your energy is, is quite low. It's quite depressed. When you focus on happy, inspirational things, you start to have hope. You start to feel excited. You know, you start to, you know, display that type of energy. Right. So social media, like, and, and how can we hate on like the pure entertainment, right? If there's a comedian on there, there's people dancing, entertainment serves its purpose too, for pure distraction, for enjoyment, for, you know, you can't just say we only need a social media full of news articles and informative things that people should hop on the bandwagon for and pledge their allegiance to. Because where is the joy? Where is the fun? Where is the decompression, right? So I think that there is, and then there's there's destruction in that too, because then people are dissociating from their lives. People are checking out. Right. People are, they're not getting involved with living. And it's just, it's a double-edged sword, really. Certainly. And, and that's kind of, I guess, what, what the questions are kind of meant to open up this discussion on is that I'm not necessarily trying to say it's, strictly black and white. I know that's certainly not the case. Um, but I do want to have a discussion centered around the idea of social media, right? Like there's this massive conversation, you know, talking about privacy and, uh, you know, the, the use of data and how social media platforms are taking this data and then giving it to companies that are building products that are specifically designed to be bought by people that will buy them. Um, and then manipulating people into buying them, right? And, and giving them to people that they know will for sure, because the data has told them, will buy these products. And then the social media platforms are just getting bigger and bigger because of it. Um, and so like these, these conversations are, you know, I, I'm certainly not trying to make it just black and white. I know that right? we're, we can move beyond that. Um, there is, I think there is an important discussion to be had about the, the overall well-being of human beings uh, in terms of how we approach social media. There's how can this... we possibly know what the overall well-being of human beings is? It's in, that's an impossibility. Like, you, like we, you, what you just mentioned, and I guess, I guess I'm going to be a little bit of devil's advocate here. Go for it. <laughs> this is what I do. Go for it. Um, we talk about like the privacy 
and like, oh, they're selling our information, these big companies that are creating products to exactly what the algorithm tells us that we'll like, and they're selling to us, like, where's the threat? Like you're getting sold a product that you would like that maybe would or wouldn't be useful to you, but you're going to buy it because it's the data of you. And companies have been doing this since the dawn of time that they could always get data from you. It's in marketing. It's in, you know, your, the, how you buy your toothpaste, the tuna that you buy. And to think that anything, what's private, you're going to tell me that the government has spots of privacy for you. Like, so, let me know, <laughs> so let me know. <laughs> this lends itself to a conversation about the 2008 recession. And one of the biggest reasons why the 2008 recession came to be is because low income families were sold mortgages that they couldn't afford. And this right debt was bought by people who buy debt and so on and so on and so on and so on until this bubble eventually burst recession, right? This is the same concept where you know, these companies are selling to people that don't know how to financially manage their money because they've never been taught because they've been- But who is responsible for that? That's a good question. And that's what I'm you saying. You know, like who is, who is responsible? I know because it, no, it's 2008 sucked for like the whole world, but who is responsible? Was it the salesman or was it the person? I mean, you could, you could argue well, about morals, the, but like the, moralistically, the salesperson also needed to support their family as well. So like what what moral thing, like the Great Depression, right? The people who tore down the houses of the people who couldn't pay their, their debts, you know, like the, who's, well, that's, who's responsible? The overall question is eventually lends itself to the overall well-being of human beings. How do we assess that? Because I don't think we do a good job of that at all. Is it our job to assess that? As a society, I think it is. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, what is a society if it is not to- I don't think that you can come up with any one way to have what is good for all. Well, no, I don't think it, I don't think it exists. I mean, I think as a society, the best way that we can operate, like how you're talking about is what we're doing is teaching people how to live their best authentic lives because everybody was so focused on- being in their joy and being resilient and being happy, they wouldn't be in a place where they feel the need to take from others. They wouldn't be in a place where they feel the need to gossip and judge. And, and they would be minding their own business because their own business would be so good. They wouldn't care about anybody else's, right? And you're a more giving, caring person when you feel like a fountain that is with excess, right? Not pouring from an empty cup, but we have so many empty cups that people are trying to get, get, and get emotionally, mentally, financially from everybody else. And like, then there's the people who are just giving, 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 and they're not being filled up either because they're draining themselves. Right. So it's like a lot of empty cups. We need more fountains. I, I hesitate to agree with you. I want to, because I feel like that's very, you know, it's, it makes sense, right? People, when given what they want and are able to kind of step into what, you know, their, uh, what they appreciate about their own expression and being able to fill their cup and all of that, I think it's wonderful, but I think it might be a little idealistic for human beings. I think, I think it's idealistic beings. to think we should find one way to support the entire wellness of everybody. <laughs> it, How, I, like, I, agree, I agree, but at the same time, it kind of goes back to your argument of then 
we then not doing it is obviously not beneficial. So like the, the question isn't that there is one way to do it. It's to look at the overall well-being of all human beings is to look at the diversity of human beings and say, how do we approach this? But what I think is how we've built our society, specifically America, obviously you're in Mexico, but I think America very much struggles with this right now because of what we're talking about, social media. I think social media has this, this inherent, uh, very specific goal of showing people what people want to see. And that's not always beneficial. And not only that, it's marketed to not the people, it's marketed to the people that are marketing. And that's, that's just not always a good thing, in my opinion, right? And the overall well-being of human beings is being affected by it. It's also being, it's also being affected in good ways and bad ways and neutral ways, right? But overall, I think there's remarkable problems that are not being addressed. Right. Well, you just brought up a really good point that I think a lot of people don't understand. And I didn't even understand this until a few years ago that the algorithm does not drive diverse thoughts your way. So the algorithm just drives your own perspective. It's, it's like mimics the reticular activation system in your brain. If you think about a new car that you want, suddenly you start seeing that new car everywhere. If you think about negative things, you start seeing negative things everywhere. The algorithm mimics you. So if you're someone who likes Nike shoes, you're going to start seeing advertisements for Nike shoes everywhere. You're going to start seeing people who wear Nike shoes or who are branded by Nike shoes or are sponsored. If you have an opinion about something, like you think basketball is stupid, you'll start seeing memes about how basketball is stupid, right? Like, and it drives you. And then you feel, like you said, like almost self-righteous because your perspective on whatever thing you've pledged your allegiance to, you're finding all this data, all this data, all this data, but it's, it's not making your point actually true because you're not actually getting their well-rounded fact. All you're getting is more of what you already think, which is driving the polarity of us. But at the same time, America's not the only one that has social media. The whole world has social media and yet other countries, well, but other countries seem to be more stable because you brought it up, right? You're, you're comparing countries. So what, what then, like, what is the difference then? I'm not comparing other countries. I have no right to because I've only been to few countries. Um, I know America relatively well. I've traveled around America and I've I talked to a lot of people from around America. I would never say that I know any country any better than America. I don't. Right? I'm, I know Afghanistan. I know Afghanistan. Right? I know what happens when a country falls apart. Um, I've been there. I've seen that. Um, and so you know, I, I see I see a different subset of humanity. Um, and that is one that is in desperation, right? I, I, I don't see humans as necessarily just good beings. They're, people are not just inherently good. People have to work to be good, I think. Um, and so this necessity for, I, I don't even want to say evil, but like criminality, um, doing what is self-interested, I think is highly apparent. It's in, in many ways, it's hypocritical. I think human beings have a hypocritical um, sense of, 
uh, oftentimes a sense of value structure where they're willing to say this is what's right, but not willing to do what's right. Um, and so I, you know, when I, when I look at social media specifically, I look at it and I think people who craft these algorithms are obviously trying to do something beneficial for their company or themselves, whatever. Um, and so it's crafted for them, right? People jump on the platform, right? Like creators like us, we're trying to do something beneficial. There's also people on the platform that's trying to do something, what they think is beneficial, but is actually quite harmful, right? Um, you know, and opinions differ, right? Like we can bring up a lot of different names in this scenario, but uh, it, it's, it's all a matter of opinion in some regards, human trafficking exists on TikTok, it exists on Instagram, exists on, on certain platforms, um, I would say all platforms. Um, and so, you know, like the idea is that if a person steps on TikTok, that's not a creator, they jump on, they see this, they see things, you know, they might see us, or they might not, they might never see anything like us. And they'll follow the track down um, into, you know, remarkably negative behavior, or harmful behavior. I, I think of negative behavior as being harmful to other human beings, right? I think you can live your life without being generally harmful to other human beings, um, i.e. physical harm, right? Like physical danger. Um, I don't think like breaking up with someone is necessarily dangerous or harmful, right? That's, let's get that kind of relatively clear. Um, and that person may never see I think what is the beneficial side of social media, which is people like us who are trying to actively shift perspectives, create critical thinking, um, you know, empathy, you know, the, the, the big kind of, I think human characteristics that, that create goodness in human beings. Um, and it continues down this road of self-interestedness. Um, and I think that can be remarkably dangerous. This, High, highly intensified individuality and self-interested uh, thought process can be remarkably uh, dangerous to relationships. And so it's going to be remarkably dangerous to society. Right. Well, and I should have precursed mine by saying like beyond operating out of survival mode, because when people are just trying to survive, you turn into an animal, like your self-interest becomes destructive because you're literally just in survival, right? Like if you need food, if you need shelter, if you need water, you're going to turn into a not human because you're just trying to survive. And so my foundation for saying that is operating out of the idea that people have their basic needs met. And I think when people have their basic needs met, you're, you're going up the hierarchy of needs of relationship and self-actualization and self-interest, not, not coming from a place of being wounded, but wanting to heal so that you can be better for others. And I think social media can step in the way of that. that that's but Social that's... media also hands you what you're looking for. So I think, you know, like what you said, some people, some clients I've gotten, they get on my calls and they say, I have no idea how I found you. The algorithm just put you on my feed. Mm -hmm. Right. So like, 
we can't, I just don't think that we can totally blame social media or the algorithm for like what people find and what road they choose to go down. And sometimes it's just because the soil that we're planted in is so toxic and so dark that we don't have any idea how to go a different way. But if you're in that environment, whether social media is there or not, that is, that sounds like the environment that you're, you're surrounded by. And at some point, perhaps something in your life will push you to choose something different or take a look down a different road. But I think social media might actually help with that because like feeds like TikTok and Instagram do give you a little bit of diversification. And all it takes is your interest to click on something to be like, oh, that's different. It's, it's quite rare though. I think, I think the, I think only recently has that happened. And I don't know if I can really trust the numbers that have come out about, you know, this platform gives diversification of, of thoughts. Um, and so like, I'm not saying that I, I fully blame social media. That's certainly not what I'm saying. Um, but my question is how would social media kind of implement uh, managing that? Like the dangers of polarity are obviously, uh, you know, you can look at 2016 as being something remarkably polarized society became, has, has got to a point where nobody likes each other on either side, even though when you look at like the, the reality is like most people can have a conversation if you keep politics out of it. But the second you bring politics into it, people get violent, they get angry, they get upset. They can't have a conversation, even though most of them probably agree with each other. If they really got down to it. Like that's my, that's my question is always going to be, how do we look at social media and hold them accountable? Not just the people that are being blasted on social media for, you know, saying what they're saying or doing what they're doing, but rather social media themselves. How do we look at them and say, you're not necessarily doing enough to bring people into uh, a relatively more humanistic kind of, I don't know, perspective. Well, what, I mean, what would you say to that? Because social media is not in control. I mean, there are companies just like any other company. And the trick is that you think that they're controlling all this thing. Like there's always a guy behind the curtain and the guy behind the curtain is the guy who has the most money because the world is run by who has the most money, who has the most power, who has the most control. And you'll never know who that guy is. Multiple of them, I'm sure. And that person, we don't know whether they're working in the world's best interest or not. And I don't think that you can like rack your head with, how do I change social media so that it takes responsibility? You cannot force anyone or anything or anyone to take responsibility. All you can do is take full responsibility yourself, I think, and demonstrate it as much as possible and, and encourage people to be in the way that, you know, like be the change you wish to see in the world, because it's a losing battle to try to get others to change in your will, in your way, unless you're forcing them to do it, unless you're blackmailing them to do it. Because even if, even if you have a client who you're like, yeah, you know what, if you did this thing, I know you would feel better. And then they cave in to what you say and they do the thing, they didn't choose that. And they're going to fall back into their pattern because they, of free will, 
it didn't do anything for them. They didn't actually make the choice or the decision. So in that instance, you're like, I'm doing this for the goodwill of humanity. You're going to be better when you stop doing alcohol or stop doing drugs. Like I'm forcing you to do this. And they're like, okay, yeah, I believe you. And they just fall right back into it because they didn't make the choice because you can't force people to do things, even if it's for their own good. You just can't. People have to find it within themselves to make the choice. I think, but we're not talking about people. We're talking about organizations. I think organizations, organizations are, are people. But they're made of people. An organization is different than just a person, though. That's like that would be like saying a corporate a corporation is one person, and so it pays taxes as one person. That but corporations make also make up units of people like them. They're a unit. They're all collaborating with the same thing in mind with their own. And, and everybody, like you said, everybody who's part of the machine who codes the thing, they're working in their self-interest to support their family, to get ahead. And they're not thinking about the whole of society. <laughs> so that's not true because there's a recently a um, Patreon actually just had an incident happen where its entire security division just left, just quit. Um, and one of the reviews that came out on, I think it was Glassdoor, uh, came out with the potential that Patreon was actually not taking down human trafficking, sex trafficking, minor, um, minor sexual uh, content was not taking it down unless legally told to do so. Um, and so their entire security division just quit. Um, and so these individuals working for this organization decided they won't work for this organization, but the organization continued to do as they will, right? And so the organization and the people that work for it are not always mutually exclusive. So that's, that's kind of what I'm saying is that organizations are not necessarily the sum of all their parts. They're some of maybe the, all of their leadership, but the parts look up to the leadership and say, I don't agree with that. I, like I can say this from the military standpoint, right? The soldiers on the ground look up and we're like, what the fuck are you thinking? That's a, that's a moronic idea, right? But then we have to do it because leadership told us to, right? And so like the army is not made up of some of all of its parts. Some, at some point, we're going to say, no, we don't agree with that. And so like, I, I just don't agree that organizations are the same thing as human beings. And so with that being said, we have some control in how we say, right, this is where congressional and uh, legislative laws can come forth and say, how you approach making an algorithm and determining what people see can be, in fact, monitored or impacted by us, right? That's, that's not taking away free will. I think sometimes it's really beneficial that someone step in front and say, there is a line to be drawn in terms of free will. Because if some people had, you know, had no limit on free will, then we'd be marrying 10-year-olds. We'd be, we'd be giving away 10-year-old girls to 60-year-old men. That's not right. In, in any world that we live in, I will never agree to that. And, and, and I think that's a majority of the population would agree with me. And so we need to have a conversation about how we can say to this organization, 
this is not right and it needs to be monitored and need, there needs to be some kind of function that says we look for this and we stop this. That's in my mind. Yeah. And I guess it just depends, you know, who chooses the line to which free will is crossed because there's a lot of <laughs> laws being passed right now that a lot of people agree with and that a lot of other people don't agree with, like the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Right. Like you could be someone who's against abortion and so happy that that law exists, but there are people dying because they have, you know, ectopic pregnancies right. and they can't get the treatment that they need and, you know, feel that we're going backwards. And it's, like where is the line drawn you know like andrew tate's banned off social media trump's banned off social media and you could definitely argue that they went too far but who draws the line who draws the line and and at the same time you know it's just <laughs> who draws the line i guess is is what i'm saying is like how do we know how do we yeah. know what is what is correct and what is not because once you put one foot in it's a slippery slope it is. And it's a, it's a good question. Um, you know, like all of those and not all of those are the same thing, right? Like talking about Andrew Tate and, uh, and former president Trump comparatively to Roe v. Wade. And those are very obviously drastically kind of polarized situations there. Um, that again, kind of lends itself to a, a conversation catered towards people not leadership right and to me i think i think redefining how america kind of leads itself is is really important i don't know if the representative government that we have really actually represents people um and that is a question that you know i don't i don't think this is necessarily a political podcast but you know every once in a while we dabble in these areas because we're talking about I think mental well-being, um, but at some point, you know, the the defining characteristics of, I mean, let's just take something like human trafficking, that can be addressed, right? That's that's a pretty clear-cut issue in terms of how we can look at that issue and say this is not good for people or not, right? It's not like Roe v. Wade. It's not like um, President Trump or Trump or Andrew Tate, this is this is very specifically uh, highly negative to a very small or very uh, very specific group of people, right? Children, right? Minors, um, and even potentially uh, young adults. Um, and so, like, I, I feel like we can ask that question, like, where do we draw the line? But that's a pretty clear cut issue. Like, why aren't we actually approaching that line, right? Like, there's relatively little being done about that in, in many regards. Well, I mean, you say that, but at the same time, there are many advocates for sex trafficking. Obviously it's not extinct, so there's not enough being done. But when we're talking about like the government and leadership and we're bringing up, like there's so many things that, you know, then you have to ask, what's the priority? What is the priority? Where is the line to be drawn? What is the priority? How do we lead in the best way possible? It's like, and that's where social media opens up the opportunity for all of these things to be addressed by groups who are advocates for them. Their hearts feel called to advocate and eliminate and abolish certain things because one government, one person can't possibly focus on, on everything. And that's like the sad truth of it is like, 
if you want to get something totally complete, like you have to be full steam ahead with it. Mm-hmm. And so like what that, that kind of brings up the point of like, what is the role of the government? What is the role of our leadership? Yeah. Is it to advocate for all of these different things? Is it to advocate for the people? Right now, it seems like they don't fucking know. <laughs> I don't yeah. see any actual things being turned out, you know, <laughs> because just because I'm in Mexico doesn't mean I'm not an American. Um, our leadership is chaotic right now. And it's been chaotic since it became kind of like a reality TV show. Yeah. And there doesn't seem to be a direction right now. And we're like, we're like bees where the queen has died, like just messy, you know, like we're all working. Like when the queen bee dies in a hive, the bees literally like die because they're confused. They don't know what to do. The queen bee gives the directions. So that's what we're doing right now. We're like spinning in circles. Everybody's like got their own agenda and we need to know what, what the plan is. And that's always when, and I'm sure, you know, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but pattern would have it that's when always there's a war that starts because war brings unity like there needs to be a cause and i you know we're getting into conspiracy theories now but like when covid (laughs) happened you know something that could have been something to unite people and just drove the dagger deeper between it like exploded the division and now we're here over two years later and damn, like, where did it go? You know, like, it's almost like that plan was scrapped and just like onto the next, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, And I really think that that 20, like 2016 really kind of implanted something that I, I don't think we've really, we've really grasped yet. I think that that polarization that kind of started with, and it had probably started long before, but I think it really came to, uh, came to a head in 2016 when, you know, this vast, these two vast groups of people said, we can't like each other anymore. And, you know, obviously COVID is still the, the, it's still there. It's the, it's, it's not necessarily always blue versus red, right? Republican versus Democrat. It's, it's now, did you take the vaccine or not? Um, And, and, and it's, both of those things, right? It's, are you Democrat? Are you Republican? Did you take the vaccine? Did you not? Um, and now there's, there's, you know, there's judgment there and that's, it's scary, you know, and in many ways, like I look at all of this and I wonder um, if, if we are going to be able to kind of remedy the, I think the cultural wounds that we've kind of crafted I don't know. Well, it's September now. This comes out in February. We'll see. We have a few months to to let this percolate. Um, I don't think so. I don't think it will go back to the way it used to be. I think things can only continue moving forward. I mean, that might sound pessimistic to whoever's listening to this, but I think realistic. I think there's going to be a crash and a burn. And I think the crashes and burns, though, always unite people because we're united in our pain and our misery. And I mean, if there is a crash and a burn, you know, I mean, I don't want to be all depressing about it, but it feels like if there's a crash and a burn at this point, it's going to be bad. You know, it's going to be, it's going to be bad because people are tired also of the huge division between the rich and the poor. The middle class is constantly getting crushed, man. Not poor enough to get help, not rich enough to survive. 
and just good, hardworking people that are just struggling. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard out there. So it's like, you know, but you say that and people get real scared. People get real scared instead of standing in their power and be like, okay, what can I do? Right. Can I do to like, you know, because we shouldn't, and this is, this is the whole plan from the top, right? The trickle down is the, is the plan to get everybody afraid, everybody crazy. So that when the hat drops, they have nothing to look forward to, except for who's going to step into leadership. And that's kind of what I think we have to be worried about is who's going to plan to step into leadership. The second the hat drops, because the whole world is in despair. Mm-hmm. And if the whole world is in despair, you know, they lose their thought that they have personal power and and they've spent all this time fighting against each other when they should have just remembered hey this is like this is my fellow brethren my fellow human no matter what race culture whatever you are and like let's work together to like unite because what is it ununited we fall you know like when we're not united we fall right and yeah i think if there's if there's anything you can do is get get real comfortable with your neighbor and make friends with them you know, and yeah. uh, build a community, just like Elise and I have done, and you know, and use that community to to bring bring good to the world. That's all. That's all I can say about that. Do you think anything will happen like the purge? Have you seen that movie? I have, and I, I, I feel like, this, dude, I feel like it's becoming realistic almost. I'm I like getting this, a little nervous. I don't have any guns or anything. I had this conversation with God. I want to say. I think it was Jonathan McLernan. Uh, I don't remember exactly who, but we talked about violence, right? And um, like, there's there's this human capacity for violence, right? I, I think a lot of people think it's learned, and I think it's not. Um, I think it's I think it's innate. I think there's an innate sense of violence because we're animals, right? All animals have an inherent inherent capacity for some kind of either relative violence or escape, fleeing. Um, right. Obviously, because we all have a fight or flight response, um, or it's built into like what they are, right? Like some animals are meant to be eaten and then become parasitic or whatever, right? Like there, there's a a capacity for that is their survival. Um, us, I think is violence and we are the most efficient, efficiently violent creature on the planet. Um, and if people don't pay attention to that, I think you're, you're, I, I think you're losing out on something that could really be a problem for you. Um, so I think it's remarkably important that we have some kind of outlet for violence because we have inherently evil human beings on the planet that exist, right? Like Hitler didn't come from nowhere. Mao Zedong didn't come from nowhere, right? Like, I don't care if you're wounded or not. Like there's sociopathic and psychopathic people that want to kill people, want to harm people, want to rape people, sexually assault people, control people, manipulate people. And those people are inherently dangerous to society, especially if they're put in leadership positions. And we've got to figure that out, you know? And and so like, do we do the purge? I fucking hope not, right? Like, I hope that's not what we choose to do. If anything, like, what is the UFC? It's the it's the it's the gladiatorial games of ancient Rome, right? Right. Put people in there, right? Make a coliseum. I was just gonna say, like, we we need outlets for like we're trying. Like, this is part of what I said in the beginning. We're trying to avoid any places of pain or aggression. Like, 
just like how video games used to get blamed for aggression a lot, but like some of these things you have to understand are outlets, yeah. outlets for what's inside of you. And instead of shaming the drive to like want to hit something, because, you know, I like work out like almost every day. And sometimes like, you know, working out gives you a boost of testosterone, like it's your energy going. And like, sometimes I want to fight something, not like, cause I want to kill or harm someone, but you just feel like ramped up, dude. You're like, dude, I just, I just like want to hit something. Cause I've got this excessive energy, but like, instead of shaming yourself for it, you know, like you join a boxing class or my, my tie, or, you know, you put it towards something. And, you know, I think there are, there are countries that require you to join the military. And I wonder if that's part of something that they that they've inherently known or built into their system, you know, it creates culture and it creates loyalty to the, to the country. And it also puts a very direct area of where to harness aggression, harness that internal, yeah. you know, warrior, that fight. It's right. very interesting. Yeah. I mean, you look at how, how cultures developed militaries in the past and it's very, um, it's very significant rite of passage in many ways, right? You look at tribes going back to, you know, 20, 30, 40,000 years ago, and there was always this rite of passage to become something of someone of value of not necessarily, you know, going out and gathering berries, but being able to be violent, um, you know, going out and being able to kill your first animal. Uh, you know, there's, there's something to be said for people who, step into uh, being able to manage violence. Um, and I think it is a, pro I think is a powerful place to be um, because if you can't manage violence, that's, I, I think, remarkably negative for society uh, and it, it needs to be addressed, right? Obviously we put criminals who cannot manage violence in prison. Now, is that always the best place? That's certainly something to be discussed and debated because I don't think it is. Um, but we're, what else are we going to do with them, right? At this point, you know, there's there's this entire economy built on prisons right now that is definitely up for debate. Um, there's certainly better ways to handle it, I'm sure, but we just haven't done it yet. Uh, but violence is, I think, the key kind of structure that I think we're is an underlying issue, but is something we don't talk about. Uh, and it's, it's always been something that I've, since I started studying sociology, it's always been something I talk about, but it feels like nobody listens to it. Right. And yet the bubble are. that no one wants to touch for fear that it may burst, yeah. but it's kind of like how I, you know, I'm, I think you said you've taken suicide training, obviously, because you've experienced, had experience with it. But when I took suicide training, they say most people don't want to ask people if they're suicidal because they're afraid it's going to cause them to yeah. do it when actually that's the exact question you have to ask someone you have to bring attention to the thing that you fear yeah you have to bring attention you have to say you know when people are going through something like this usually they're thinking of committing suicide are you thinking of committing suicide and when we're talking about you know violence and stuff like that we like to skirt over it because we don't want to touch it we're afraid to touch it yep. but no there's a lot of violence that's going on. And, but even deeper than the violence, it's like what's causing the violence. And we go all the way back to the start of the conversation is a lot of wound, a lot of trauma, a lot of division within families, right? Yeah. Lack, lack of parents, mother or father, but a lot of, um, I think I read a study that all the school shooters didn't have a father figure. So it's very important that we like, look at this shit. 
look at the importance of us being family units and being there to support one another. And, and like you talked about the rite of passage, the rite of passage for men, that, that tradition was lost, you know? So like with, there are some traditions that should be lost, right? Like 13 year olds marrying 60 year olds. That was a thing. Don't forget it was real. (laughs) Um, But there are things that, you know, have completely been eliminated that maybe we should still have to keep our society healthy, to keep a healthy culture, to keep us bonded. Yeah, I, I agree. It's, and that's a, that's also a hard, you know, it it goes back to what you said earlier is right. We're trying to eliminate suffering and not embracing Mm -hmm. it, not Mm -hmm. understanding it. I I absolutely agree. I mean, I didn't name my book defy the darkness for no reason. Right. I think darkness or the struggle or uh, pain, any of that, right. Any synonymous words in there are, are going to happen. Right. That, I mean, good luck trying to get through life without going through any kind of fucking pain. Right. Cause mm-hmm. the first time you lose somebody, you're not living. Right. Like you either died young or you lived in a box, right? Like you're, you're going to lose someone and it's going to be painful. Um, and so you have to learn how to understand it, uh, compartmentalize it in some capacities, process it, overcome it, live with it, you know, learn from it. Um, and if you want to be, uh, someone, someone that impacts society and impacts the thing that you went through, uh, you then have to learn how to share it and express it and use it for the benefit of other people and not just the benefit of how you get through life. Right. It's not, it's not mandatory that you come out of, you know, all of the darkness and share everything. You don't have to, but to, to really help people, it requires you to, to really deconstruct it and, and, you know, decompress it to a point where you can actually share it openly, right? I, obviously, I try to be an example of that where I can talk about my suicide attempt. I talk about my father. Um, and when he, he ended his life when I was six, like I talk about all these things. Um, and that is not always easy. If anyone's listened to my podcasts or the podcasts I've been on, I've cried, right? I've, I've cried openly and talked about all of these things in many different ways. You know, I, I was on a podcast the other day where I cried about talking to my mom about almost ending my life like three days before, you know, and even, even, you know, what, almost eight years after all of this happened, I still feel it. Right. And I feel like it'll probably continue because the more I talk, like when I start to consider my daughter, Oh my God. Right. I, I start talking about grace and the emotions just well up because it's a different kind of conversation now, right? Like that's, that's the remarkable thing is that the emotions adapt to how you represent and express yourself. And if you don't allow your emotions to adapt, you never really learn about who you are. Because I didn't realize that, I didn't realize how impactful it was to have this little baby and to recognize that I never thought I'd get here. Never thought I would, I would be in a position where one, I have a wife, like never thought I'd get there. Never thought I'd live past 30. Here I am 32. Um, but I never thought I would have this little baby girl looking at me. Um, and that's just, I mean, there's, there's just nothing else like it. And when, and when you really recognize that, 
that comes from actually doing the work and sitting down and saying, where am I going wrong? And, and addressing that. Um, and you know, we, we need to continue to have deeper conversations. I love that we've challenged each other in so many ways throughout this podcast to the point where, you know, we're trying to kind of dismantle certain things and, and deconstruct and understand certain things. And, you know, will we always agree on everything? No, but you know what? We're having good conversation. I love it. And I appreciate it, you know, and, and we're able to continuously dig deeper and that's beneficial, right? We hold each other accountable to, you know, here's where I think you're not paying attention. And Dylan, here's where I think you're not paying attention to certain things. And we always kind of keep each other aligned when we're able to emotionally regulate ourselves, right? Which we did uh, through difficult and, and sometimes challenging conversation. And we benefited from it. I benefited from it. I don't know about you, but I did. Yeah. Um, and I love that. And because here we are, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so grateful to have met you and to, you know, be in the presence of a man who takes so much ownership of himself as a, as a complete human being, not just the work and not just what society expects of him, but your emotional capacity, your ability to feel things, your ability to express those feelings in a very vulnerable, very relatable way. You know, my eyes teared up as your eyes teared up. We're, we're co-regulating each other, but I really felt that man, because, yeah. um, you know, like, I think a lot of us have experience with our own personal ideations of suicide. And when yeah. you said, uh, it like choked me up when you said the part of, you know, thinking about how I never thought I would get here. Um, I've had those moments quite a few times in my life, but also when you're talking about being married and having a baby, um, it wasn't until just this year where I started thinking that might be a possibility for me at some point, because it was an idea I rejected my whole life. I said, I didn't want it. I'm just going to be solo. I'm going to be independent my whole life. Maybe I'll have a life partner, but I never having no kids. And I, and it just like, I've done a lot of, you know, the work always continues our self-work. And so like, since I came to Mexico, like six months ago and had my relationship end and, um, I did even more internal work and ended up like meeting someone who I felt different about who, yeah. who made me feel different about the way that I perceived life and what was possible for me. And, and maybe that what I wanted wasn't to just be alone and wasn't, and like, because I realized the reason why I wanted that was because I had so much dysfunction and I'm afraid to pass that on. No matter how many tools I have, I'm it's Being a parent terrifies me. <laughs> being a parent absolutely terrifies me. And the dysfunction of seeing dysfunctional parents terrifies me. Me being like, what, what if I fuck someone's life up because I've chosen a wrong partner or I get divorced or I'm not a good mom or this or that, you know, like you, you can become so encumbered with your own fears about things that you reject the idea or the possibility of them completely. So to have this come to me and be like, maybe you could be to this point is like, I, I just got so choked up when you said that. Cause I feel like I'm at this turning point now where I'm like, maybe this could be a possibility for me too. And then you think about, you know, those are the little pockets of hope that you kind of give yourself of like, you got to keep going. 
because you don't know how good it can get for you. You don't know what's waiting for you. And the end is waiting for all of us guaranteed. So you might as well just ride it out to see what happens because nothing ever stays the same. So misery does not continue to stay the same forever. Happiness doesn't stay the same forever. Something will shift, something will move and things will be different. Just hold out, just hold out for it. Yeah. I, I, that is probably, I think one of the most deep, the, the most deep sentiments I've ever had on this podcast. Right? Like, I, I don't think anyone's, I know people have cried and dug into things, but I think the, the relatability of kind of discussing something so recent, you know, because that's, that is so recent, that's so deep, you know, the, the depth of really recognizing this is something I could actually have. And I didn't recognize it until this year. I mean, that's remarkable. And especially as, as a coach, right? Like we don't, talk about that all that much like i i really haven't discussed that obviously because grace is to me and she's adeline grace i call it grace um is so recent to me that i really haven't stepped back on social media and talked about it i've talked about it on podcasts but most of the podcasts aren't going to come out until like like later this year right so you know it's so to me it's so important you know that these anecdotes these thoughts these feelings come out about us because we're humans right we're as much as we're like the kind of the authority figures in talking about trauma and doing this work we are also living our lives we're going through our own traumas just last year like talking about my life like and i know we've talked about this but we lost three right before we got to her and i you know, I lost a soldier last year. One second. I lost a soldier last year. It was a hard hit. I lost a grandpa. I was in sniper school and I lost my grandpa. Um, passed away before I could make it home. Um, but those, those were there through all of, you know, the work that I'm doing with clients. Um, and we don't know, we don't always have that time and that, you know, that opportunity to, to work with someone else all the time. Like I, I'm thankful that I have my wife, my wife kind of is my, my outlet and she's been remarkable. Um, but those, those traumas are still there, right? The breakup was still there for you. And we don't always jump out and be like, you know what, this happened, right? I'm a human being too, right? And these, these conversations, we are representations of the very values that we hold and the values that we teach people, right? The, the, I don't want to talk about those things, right? But the requirement of who I've become and who I've made myself, right? The first 25 years of my life, I was, no, you do not talk about it. And the last seven, eight years of my life has said, fuck you, Dylan, you're talking about it, right? And so I force myself in some regards to counter the very weaknesses that I know that I have to learn how to express myself, to know whether it's right or wrong to express myself, you know, and here, this is my podcast. So I do whatever the fuck I want. Um, and so I express myself here. And if people don't like it, that's it's up to them. They can leave me a review. If it's not good, that's fine. I don't do it for them. Right? Like 
this podcast is purely for myself. Um, and I've said that before. I've said that many times. I don't think I'll ever change that. That's why I call it the Dylan experience and not the user experience. It's for me, right? This is my, this is my own healing in some regard because it forces me to express and talk about things that I normally would hide from the world. Um, and so to really think about that, like you're doing the same thing. And that's when you put two people in a conversation like this, it's, it's a really powerful thing, you know, to feel emotions and we're, we're sitting here co-regulating and, you know, doing the, doing the work, this is doing the thing, right. And this is powerful. This is important. I can just feel that what I am saying to you is received and what you're saying to me, I hope you are also recognizing that it's received. And that I think is a good relationship. It's a, a damn good thing. That, that is exactly the benefit of having a coach or a therapist, someone who is trauma-informed, someone who can be a good foundation of what a relationship, a healthy relationship looks like. So you can go into the world and create a community of these. Because even though um, I didn't solve all my problems with my therapist, she's still my therapist. This is like five years later. I don't have her like on a consistent basis, but I know she's there. I anchored her as one of my constants, you know, because there was no one else in my life that I could have. And I think some people become not ashamed of that, but like, people get into this idea of like, we shouldn't have to pay someone to care. And it's not that you're paying someone to care. Sometimes, you know, like you, you are ensuring you have a constant in your life. And sometimes you need that more than anything. And that constant provides you the foundation to create other constants. Especially, especially if you yourself are not a constant. Yeah. I, I think that's probably one of the most powerful things. Like when I was 25 and I was struggling through all of my all of my things, I knew for a fact that I was not a constant for myself, right? I, I just had a conversation with a client today that she, she was talking about. She recognized that one of the things that she valued was self-deprecation. She valued that for all of her life because that's what she knew, right? The disapproval of self, that's what the definition was for her, right? She knew that the culture and the, the environment that she lived in was I had to disapprove of myself. And so she created that. And I can tell you that was the same thing that I did, right? And so I had to, I recognized that I needed someone to help me understand I couldn't do that anymore, right? And that's where all of this for me, it really began was I started with conversations with my friends, with my sister. And again, this is the one that's really emotional, my mom right? And forcing myself to, to know, right? To know that this person knew that I was going through this, right? When my mom knew that I was going through something that was suicide related, I forced myself to change that outlook and say, I have to learn how to appreciate myself and be a center for my life and be a constant in my own life or else I'm not going to do the work. When she knows, that means I know I have to do the work, right? And so that's, that's how my kind of relationship worked is I had someone else that once she knew, that was the initiative for me to do the work, right? I used someone else. Not everyone works like that. That's okay. But 
it's, it's incredibly beneficial sometimes when you have someone else in your life that says, that forces you to say, they know it's time to do it, right? It's time to work, you know? Well, I'm glad that you pointed out the, the relational aspect is what helped you change because we are born into relationship. And there's a lot of rhetoric out there about you got to love yourself before you love others. You got to heal before you get into a relationship. But relationships are where we heal because when we're babies, we rely on our caregivers to take care of us. You have, you didn't learn how to be an individual before you learned how to relate. So to think that you could become an individual and heal relationship problems as an individual is, is incorrect. And the place where I found the most healing, like, you know, you, you relay that information to your mom and that triggered something for you to be like, I got to do the work for me the most rapid and transformational healing that I've had in the last six months, why I realized this was experiencing that very loving relationship. It completely flipped so many things for me because I realized this was the first time I had ever encountered a secure attachment style person, someone who was not representing to me all of the narratives that I played in my head about how I was going to be valued in a relationship yeah. And it, it, the love that they had was so secure that I was able to reflect on my own behaviors that much quick, that much more quickly and change. Like I just became a better person. I wanted to become a better person because I was starting to see my own narratives reflected back to me. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was so yeah. rapid too. It's like, and it's rapid because I have years of like knowing the tools and stuff now, but I wasn't able I wasn't able to see those things until I hit that healthy relationship. And only then when I felt safe in that environment in a romantic, because obviously I had my therapist and she's a healthy relationship, but it's not romantic. It's not the same. Right. It wasn't until I encountered someone who reflected back to me, healthy relationship patterns that I felt safe enough to start allowing myself to think that things could be different for me because until then, I still was attached to you and I didn't, I didn't, I didn't notice that I was thinking this way, but I was still attached to you. I have to do everything by myself because I can only rely on myself. I'm going to be independent. I just said, Oh, I'm happy being independent. I'm happy being alone because I get to do whatever I want. When really it was like, no, I just haven't encountered anybody who I could trust yet. I haven't encountered anybody whose energy has said to me, you don't have to be anything, but who you are. Because for me, my whole life, I had to be, I had to be the stability for someone else. Yeah. I had, I had to be that in my relationships, just take care of people, take care of people. Even when I didn't want to, even when I tried to like get them to take care of themselves, my energy was that of attracting people who, you know, they, they weren't going to reflect that security back to me that I needed. And so now I am a much more, I've still have work to do. I'm sure that the evolution is eternal, but I feel like this has been such a gift because I was so anxiously avoidant attached and I didn't know. And now I feel like, holy shit, I'm so much more secure. My partner doesn't have to be there for me 24 seven. I think that we, we start to get all these ideologies also about who a perfect partner is. And it just made me realize also the perfection of a flawed human being. Your perfect partner will never be perfect. Like they're not a perfect person. And how wonderful is that, that it's okay. Actually, sometimes they're actually going to hurt me, even if we're in a healthy relationship and it's okay. How do they respond is the important part. And so within this dynamic has been, 
I think you can heal a lot within love, within real love. And I think the world is trying to heal a lot by avoiding pain. And in the same way they avoid love, they, they, you're kind of like avoiding everything. Yeah. And when you avoid, you do not heal anything. Yeah. Well, I think in the, in the avoidance of love, you actually find yourself not defining it. And so you, yeah. you, you end up in relationships in which are, are created in such a high rate of speed or, and even without speed sometimes that you really don't sit there and say, what is your definition of love and what is mine? And do they actually mesh, right? Do they actually uh, react to each other in a uh, combative way or non-combative way in a collaborative way? I think, you know, if, if, if we can really sit down and define love, like me and my wife have done this, like, what is our definition of love? We kind of built it together. Mine is, it was action without expectation. And she was like, yeah, that makes sense. Right. And, and since then I've, I've really taken that question to, to so many deeper levels that we force ourselves to continuously adapt that question. What is love? How do we define it? Um, and I think at this point, like I've defined it very simply action without expectation, but it's where the expectation lies is actually within the relationship, right? You can define expectations within the relationship, but you can't define it within love, right? You can't put expectations on love, right? This, this no way to measure it, right? It, you, you can't, you can't take away from someone's ability to give to someone, right? So I really look at it as a one-way road, right? Like if I love my wife, I have a one-way road to her. I have no expectation for her, her road to come to me, right? Now, if that person leaves me, that doesn't negate my ability to love them, right? And this is, I think, where people kind of lose, lose the idea is that if that person leaves, you don't stop loving them, right? That's why it's a one-way road. You still love that person, right? You're still going to appreciate, appreciate that person until eventually you find a new place to either turn your road around on yourself or give it to someone else, right? To give it to your children, to give it to your mom, to give it to your dad, to give it to your family, to give it to your, your future spouse, right? Like these love, I think, is a continuous development of one-way roads to other people, right? But we can't live on one-way roads forever, right? And so we have to define our expectations within relationships of saying, we also need a one-way road to us. Um, and, and we need people to give to us as well. And so it's not as much an expectation of, I need your love to be exactly what I want. I think that's kind of what people kind of try to get because- Exactly, exactly. Is your love a perfect match for my love? Right. And it's, it's, it's less a representation of, I, I love you to the point where I want you to be yourself. That yes. is a, a, a real tangible, I think, open love that I think lasts for a long time. Right. And I, I can't tell you if that's truly true yet, because I haven't lasted, you know, a whole lifetime with my wife, but I will let you know. Right. But I, I think when you can create that security within attachment, to the point where two people can be themselves, uh, even if there's mistakes made, uh, it can be remarkably beneficial regardless of whether it lasts. Right. right. 
And that's well, and that, important. Yeah, that is, that is so, that's so perfect. And that's, um, I don't know if you follow Esther Hicks or not at all, but she's like a spiritual guru and, you know, she goes and Jim Rohn also, I think it was Jim Rohn who had the quote that I'm going to do the best I can for me, for you. And I want you to do the best you can for you, for me, because two people who are in perfect alignment with themselves can be in perfect synchronicity for as long, as long as they can. It's when we start to divert off the road and try to do something for somebody else, because we're trying to earn something from them. Our perfect definition of love for how we think that they should be giving it to us, that we start to get all confused and muddled and feel like unfulfilled. And for me, I think my definition of love is the state of being. And I used to, and there's different types of love. Like if you look at Greek philosophy, there's philos and agape and romantic love. And I try to actually be in a state of being of like, how much love can I just emit with my energy every day? Because I used to try to I don't know, maybe limit it because I had a dysfunctional family and I kind of, I've created little families all over the globe. Like I go to my ex boss's house every year for Christmas and, and like, I see that as a family. And then I also have kind of like a a semi-adopted mom and her husband in California and, and they're also my family. And then I'm like, maybe I can just have unlimited families. Like why, why limit it? You know, like I am allowed to love as many people as possible because there is no limit. And when it comes to romantic love, I think people get caught up because the narrative is that like within marriage, it's like till death do us part forever, only you. And I feel like it, it makes people feel like they're limiting their love when really like, if you think about like love as a state of being, and I'm just gonna love because I love the feeling of love and giving then you don't feel like, oh my God, my love is limited that I'm receiving, right? If you feel unlimited for what you can give, you feel unlimited for what you can receive, even if it's only from one person. And you're not judging the type of love then that they're giving because you feel like, okay, I married this person. They have to fulfill all of my needs and wishes exactly as I want for the rest of my life Mm -hmm. because I've chosen them and they're the only one that I can have. So you must be perfect exactly for me. And I think people for like, they forget that there's another human there. Like they can, they can do whatever they want. They're going to grow into whatever they want. Can you hold on to your commitment of love, even through the things you don't like about that person? Because some things about that person, you're not going to like, cause you're going to be like, wow, that's a little weird. And I really don't like it, but do I still love them? Sure. Like all their other things add up to this person that I love, even if I don't agree with this one thing. And is that okay? Because the less judgment you hold about your lover, it's really representative of the judgment you hold about yourself. Yeah. It's, it's a collaborative interaction, right? You, you know, the, the love that Val and I had created in the beginning is not the same love that we, you know, continue to manifest now. You know, we still, we still have these conversations about certain things. Like we, we actually downloaded the app, an app the other day that like app continues to ask us questions about us, right? It, some of it's intimacy, some of it's, you know, relationship focus, some of it's like future focus. So it's like, we continue to define our love together. It's not about necessarily what is my definition now, right? Because it might change. Right. In 20 years, when I have conversations with 20,000 people about what's your definition of love, me and Val might have changed it because of that. Right. Because I come to her and I say, well, here's an interesting thought that I had today. What do you think about it? 
And then we have that conversation and we collaborate and we say, well, maybe this is something that we need to try and, you know, bring into our relationship, bring into our, our life. It's not about death to us part. It's about creating life until we die, right? The, the death part that. is, is, is an, is a, an afterthought, right? You have to create life to get there, right? And if you, if you're thinking, oh man, death to us part, huh? Oh, that's a long time. <laughs> you know, like that's... Yeah. Then you're just like biding your time and then you're going to be biting your fingernails going like, oh my God, something's going to shake you because you're not focused on life. Right. That's not enjoyable. Right. The, the, the art of creating a life is enjoyable, right? When you really step into it, when, you know, we, the same things that you're talking about is when you approach yourself and then you create and collaborate right? When you address your issues, right? Like defy the darkness, right? There is darkness in you. There is evil in you and you need to address it. You need to focus on it and understand it um, and, and appreciate what you've been through, uh, approach what you've been through. You need to feel what you've been through. If you're, if you need to be angry about it, be angry. If you need to grieve it, right? Grieve it. <laughs> We've obviously talked, talked about and covered that topic already, right? There are, certainly things that I still need to grieve and Val, right? And, and we continue to have those conversations, right? We still talk about miscarriage. We still talk about uh, the people that I've lost in my life, the people that she's lost in her life. Um, because it is, again, a collaborative interaction. We have to create it together because if we don't, we're literally creating two separate lives that eventually spread apart and they go their separate ways. Um, and if, if anyone thinks divorce is something that kind of comes out of nowhere, you're clearly not paying attention. No, enough, no right? never it, comes out of nowhere. It happens again. And it, it's something small that happens again and again and again, that you didn't appreciate that you didn't approach that you didn't talk about that you didn't address. Um, you didn't express yourself. It's all the little things coming to a head. And if you didn't, if you didn't see it, if you didn't see it coming, you weren't paying attention, right? You know, and it, it, it's collaborate. I mean, that's, that's the biggest recommendation I can give. And obviously I don't know if my answer is right or not, because we'll see at the, in the end, but so far so good, you know? Yeah. Well, I love that. And one thing that I would like to point out about what you're saying too, is the success of a relationship does not depend on its length. Yeah. Because I think that even divorce can come in a very collaborative way. Like yeah. if two people are going about their lives and they've just really grown apart, you can consciously choose to separate. However, like you said, if you think it's suddenly sporadic, uh, it's, it never is. And I talked about this on a different podcast with someone where they said men tend to minimize a lot the problems that are brought to their attention. But if your partner is bringing something to your attention, it's because they want it to be addressed. And what men will do is either they'll minimize it because they're like, oh, it's not really a big deal. Like I didn't take out the trash and minimize and minimize, and minimize. Right. But then that's kind of like a cut in your relationship each time, or they take a personal responsibility, try to solve it in silence alone. And there's no collaboration in either of those. Huh. And the relationship has a slow and silent death yeah. because that is your partner's way of coming to you and asking you. Also, if your partner is usually coming to you for something, unless they're consciously like aware they're going to bring something up to you like right away. But usually if they're bringing something up to you, people like really tend to fight conflict. 
So if they're bringing something up to you, it's not even just that that one thing happened. Chances are it's probably been bothering them for a while, even to bring it up. And yep. so if you dismiss that, it's like dismissing and invalidating your partner's attempt to reconcile that little thing in the relationship. And you need to just reconcile every time. It's like the mini reconciles that happen that keep relationships together. It is. It absolutely. I love that you, uh, it's a great analogy, great discussion. Um, the, those, the, the lack of collaboration in both of those examples is perfect, right? You can't minimize something and you can't just try to do it all on, all on your own. Like that, neither of those are bringing your partner into the conversation. Um, and that is, again, kind of goes back to how are you approaching yourself, right? Are you afraid to express in that relationship to even, you know, potentially approach criticism, right? Approach doing something wrong, right? Like feeling certain things, right? Like those are conversations that again, like if you can't do that yourself, bringing your partner into it could be highly detrimental to you, right? And so like, you've got to find ways to, if you can't approach the conversation to express yourself there, you need to start somewhere, right? You need to find some way to learn, right? And this is what we do, right? Like we teach people the words, right? Like if there's anything that I am, I, I, I don't always just, I don't heal trauma, not always, right? Sometimes I teach you the words to help you heal yourself, right? So that you can actually learn how to express these thoughts, how to write about them, how to, how to read more about them, um, how to fully grasp the use of expressive words and emotions. And then you go find someone that can actually benefit you, right? It might be your wife. It might be your husband. It might be uh, your best friend, or uh, it might be your therapist, right? Like I've, I've, I work with multiple, multiple people that have me and a therapist, and it's a remarkable combination, right? It's an important combination because sometimes I give them a very different perspective, obviously, right? than most therapists, which is probably a good thing, right? And therapists give them a different clinical conversation than I do, which is a good thing, right? Um, and so I, I just love, I love this conversation. I feel like we could probably have this conversation for another couple hours because I feel like, like this Joe is- Like a Joe Rogan podcast. God, right? <laughs> you know, like I didn't, I didn't name it the Dylan experience because of the Joe Rogan experience, but everyone tells me that talking to me is an experience. So I just named it that, yeah. um, but it, it is becoming that. Um, but we, uh, we should probably save some of this for another time. Um, probably, you know. Another time I, capsule podcast. Right. Another time capsule podcast. I'll see uh, you a year from at, now. <laughs> at some point, right. Uh, well, you'll see me in a year from now, but podcast won't come out for like two or three years, right? <laughs> Like yeah, at this wow. rate. Wow. Um, we'll see. We'll, we'll figure something out. But uh, Elise, I just want to thank you uh, for, for obviously just being who you are. Um, it's remarkable to kind of meet the, I don't even know how to say it, but the equal and opposite of, of me uh, on the female side of things. Um, and I think what you do is incredible. It's, it's fantastic. And it's so important. Um, if I can't reach men, I'm glad someone is. Uh, and, and I hope that someone finds some benefit from this and maybe reaches out to you. I'd love to, I'd love to hear that. Um, 
uh, before you go, uh, obviously you need to answer the question, the last question, the only scripted question, um, which is if there was one message you could leave the world, what would that be? I feel like we just, we just answered so many things to leave the world in this podcast. I think at this current stage in my life, because I feel like it always changes, find community that you can be authentic in because your community will save you from a lot of things and it will save you from yourself when you're at your lowest. So that's what I would say. That's really relatable. And it, you know, I, to, to kind of relate to that, it, it's not always my social media community that I relate the most to. It's actually uh, my veterans, right? My, the guys I deployed with, like, uh, are my guys. Like, they are my, like, they, they die for me, I die for them. Like, that that kind of relationship doesn't exist anywhere else. I don't know. And maybe it does, but it's, it's hard to create something uh, outside of deployment like we do. Um, and so like that community to me, like these are the guys I go out and like, Hey, let's go, uh, let's go cold weather camping in negative 35. You know, like who else would say yes to that? Right. Just these guys. Right. And, you know, go shooting or, you know, just, if I were to call one of them right now and say, I'm struggling, one of them would be here, right? They'd figure out like, Hey, I've got something going on. Can you go see him? One of them would be here. Um, and that's remarkable. You know, when you, when you create such an impact in people and then also show them that you also are a part of their life. I mean, that is, that is such a powerful thing to have. So create that you know, create such a benefit to the world that you have people that would benefit you. You know, and I, I think that's, it's a good, it's a good person when you do that. I, I really value people like that. And I obviously value you and I'm so grateful that you came on um, as always. And I, I always just want to, I don't think I could thank you enough for all that you do and all that you share. So Again, I'll, I'll say it. Thank you so much for everything you do as well. And, and also for, you know, I, I don't have actually a, a strong in-person community. My social media community has saved me. And I'm almost grateful to myself for building it because yeah. it, I, I, cre I had to create a community where I belonged. And you gave me a chance at the beginning of my social media journey. I think I only had like 40,000 followers and you had like, I don't know, 500,000, <laughs> there was like no reason for you to like say, Hey, I'll do this year of the man summit with you, or I'll go on your podcast. I was like, really shook. I was like, Oh my God, Always he's talking to me. I feel so small, you know, <laughs> like, why is he giving me the light of day? But you gave me a chance and now here we are. Right. And like, it, you know, like I I'm grateful to you for being the person that you are and you know, like it, it, it makes an impact. You were never small. That's the reality, right? The, the number of followers that you have cannot determine your size. You are a personality that matters, is important, and has such a valuable thing to say. You were never small. 
And you just needed to see that. You didn't need me. You just needed to see it. So I hope you recognize that and I hope you take it for what it is and, and you continue to do what you do because you need to. Not only for yourself, but for many others. Naturally. All right. We got to call it a day. We have to this time. Um, Elise, thank you very much. I appreciate everything. Again, I can say it so many times. For those of you that are still listening, I just want to say thank you if you've made it through this entire episode. Well, this was going to be a long one. I hope you uh, Two and a half hours. <laughs> strapped in for this one. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll catch you next time on the Dylan Experience. Thanks, Take care guys. of yourself. <laughs>